As we come back together this morning, we continue our uh, walk through the lectionary readings. We're in the season of Epiphany, uh, or the third, second Sunday after Epiphany. And this season has two main emphases uh, historically for the church. The first, of course, uh, kicks off with the uh, passage about the wise men and the recognition of the Gentile world recognizing the birth of a king. And so there is the revelation of God's king to the world and all of the implications then that follow from that. The other uh, theme throughout historic uh, application of this season is the revelation of God through His church and through the uniqueness of the community of faith in its ability to include all manner of people, to transform our understandings of earthly and worldly power and the way that things can and should be done, not someday in the future, but in the midst of the existence right here and now, the presence of the Holy Spirit transforming and encouraging. And so what we read this morning in the Old Testament was a beautiful section of passages talking about God's love for His people as a beautiful bride, that He is gathering together that He is blessing, that He is restoring a people that He describes as His beloved, who He wants and desires to give everything He has to, who He loves to see beautiful and adorned with glory in a way that He defines it. And of course, that's huge blessing. And so we have this image, and it's often hard, especially when we get to the Corinthian passage, because it's rare that at least from the outside, the church looks all that beautiful. We tend to be rather divided. We tend to be rather at odds with one another. And so Paul, as you know, spends most of his ministry really encouraging God's people to be unified in a way that really confronts the way in which the world, the evil in this world, would seek to divide and therefore maintain its power. And so this morning we look at uh, Paul's famous passage in 1 Corinthians. We're going to read verses uh, in chapter 12, verses 1, and I'm going to go ahead and read through verse 13 because there's a, there's a way in which uh, the end of 13 helps with our understanding, particularly on this Sunday, of what it means to be a part of the community of faith seen as the bride of the great King. Let's put the text in front of us. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works, all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, and another the message of knowledge, by means of the same Spirit, other gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another miraculous powers and to another prophecy, 
to another distinguishing between the spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the same Spirit, and He gives them each one, just as He determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all the parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son, that You have given us the Spirit. And Lord, it is in the richness of the Trinity, the richness of our fellowship within a God who is in fellowship with Himself. Lord, that we have hope of understanding what it means to be Your people in and through this world. We ask that by Your Spirit, Your Word would encourage Your people. And Lord, whatever is said this morning that is not useful, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, Amen. And so we begin to think about the commonness of the human experience and the importance at leading into even our, our sermon next Sunday about the body of Christ uh, and all of its different parts, there is the importance of reflecting on the need for all of us to be a part of the body of Christ. And that what Paul is arguing with the Corinthians about is whether or not folks think that certain people are more important than others. And of course, we see this in human organizations all the time. And so I, I can start perhaps uh, with football, and then I'll work to the orchestra. But both of these, interestingly enough, I'm trying to hit my musical and my, my athletically oriented people. You know, you try and give illustrations that reach everybody. So if you know football, right, and if you know college football, you know that every year they have the Heisman Trophy. And the Heisman Trophy is for, ostensibly, the best athlete in college football. Now, interestingly enough, it almost exclusively goes to running backs and quarterbacks. Rarely does a defensive player ever win the Heisman Trophy. Now, why is that? Well, the way the football team sort of orchestrated is that there are certain people who end up being up front, and they make highlight reels, and it's pretty spectacular. And it's certainly an important position. But the notion that the best athlete is always the quarterback or the running back is just, in fact, not true. We all know that defensive ends are clearly the best athletes because... They're big and strong and fast, and they get to hit people. So there's all kinds of wonderful things about being a defensive end. But they don't usually get the glory or the recognition that a quarterback and a running back does. We have a fascination with scoring points. Same is true often in soccer, the other football. The forward is the one. The one who scores the goals is the one that everybody wants to interview. Rarely do the goalies or the defenders get the same sort of recognition. They're special, they're elite, they must be because they're scoring the greatest. Now one might think that the artistic world would be free from such pettiness, but you haven't been in an orchestra. And the way the orchestra's organized, of course, is around, I don't not, I'm not exactly sure. Whether or not the violinists convinced everybody that the violinist being up front in a particular setting in an orchestra, 
made the sound better, or the sound was actually better, and so the violists were put up front to lead the orchestra. But regardless, if you're in an orchestra, you kind of know that the violinists are, are the quarterback, they're, they're, the, they're the creme de la creme. And then in the strings, by the time you get down to the double bass, they're usually not recognized, shall we say, as the best musicians. And then let alone if you get, yeah, I know, Sean, you'd get that. And, and of course, Amy doesn't share these views, but there are people in orchestras. And then heaven forbid you play brass or percussion. And there just ends up to be a pecking order. And we tend to think that those who end up up front, as wonderfully and beautifully it is, tend to be therefore somehow more special. And we have a culture and a sense that that is what we long for. And certainly my line of work is no different. Right? To have the bigger pulpit or the stronger book writing or now I guess blog, uh, blog posting list. Right, to be well-known, to be a leader, to be one uh, quoted and reflected upon. And of course, if you have a bad first violin, it's kind of hard to listen to any good piece of music. The point is not to denigrate, and Paul never denigrates the gifts that are given. He never says these are inconsequential. What he does is reorient our understanding of what the body of Christ sees as the importance of its function and how it honors all of the parts. And so this morning what he does is he begins to talk about the gifts of the Spirit which are exceedingly tempting to be seen as somehow the gifts of the elite, the gifts of the truly spiritual, the gifts of those who have ascended to a certain level in fellowship with God, and therefore, if you have these gifts, you must be somehow further down the road than me. And Paul, in chapter 11, undid the idea that money and wealth should impact the way the Lord's worship service and supper is impacted, that all should eat common. Now he addresses the issues of the spiritual gifts, and there's a couple of corrections that he has. There is a stressing of the joy of the common and then there is the experience of the Spirit. And so we have correction, common, and the experience of the Spirit. First, correction, verse 2. Uh, there is a love for the dramatic. Uh, the scholars tell us that uh, you know that when you were pagan, some of you were influenced and led uh, by idols. And if we know how pagan worship worked in the first century, we know that it's not uncommon that those who could experience ecstatic experiences through use of drugs and use of uh, running around and getting very hot and sweaty and not eating for several days, and you'd get some sort of vision, and that ecstatic experience and whatever you said in those moments would be highly valued, and especially if it came sort of half true. And you could riff off of that half truth and say, see, I had a vision. And so the idea of having an ecstatic experience that was dramatic, that was powerful, was clearly, uh, historically, a driving reality in many of the mystery religions and great cults of Jesus' day and in the day of the early church. And so Paul is saying, look, I know what you used to experience, and you used to think the louder and wilder it got, the more and more true and the more and more real it became. Now, he is not talking about joyful worship, right? The antithesis of this is, is, 
is to suggest that what Paul wants us to do is to be somber in worship. Gosh, you just can't get that out of Paul because he talks about joyful singing with various instruments and the celebration of the Lord and how we should actually talk to one another in psalms and spiritual psalms. To some degree, apparently, Paul, the Christian life is something like a musical where we sing truths to one another, which would be great uh, in a lot of ways because the chanting and the psalms and the beauty of music, I can't get out of my head. So if you want me to remember something, sing it to me. Paul is not suggesting that full-orbed emotional worship is a bad idea. What he is saying is that if you think it has more integrity when you lose some measure of control in an ecstatic experience, you're missing the point because the point is not the exceptional. In fact, what Paul's going to argue, and I'm giving this away at the beginning because I'm not good at keeping secrets, is that there is something wonderful about the common experience of the Holy Spirit. And that it is not the exceptional, the earthly desire to somehow be unique, but actually the richness of being individuals experiencing the common life of the Spirit that becomes the ultimate correction for us. So first of all, we're not looking for the dramatic as we did in pagan days when we'd have these uh, ecstatic and wild experiences. We're also war uh, warned in verse 3 that it's not Jesus plus. So this, uh, this utterings that are ascribed to not Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit are incredibly important in the midst of not only that day but this day. That first and foremost, someone should say, should not say, who's full of the Spirit, Jesus is not enough. Jesus is a curse. Now the idea here, of course, is that because he was hung on a tree, if somebody looks at that and says, look, anybody in Roman times who gets nailed to a cross clearly was cursed by God. And so this isn't an odd statement. It actually fits with something that would perhaps be a spiritual addition. Look, Jesus was great, but he didn't quite get it done. He was cursed. He hung on a tree. But now we're going to take what Jesus did. And we're going to make it better. Right. This is mostly what Paul faced that Jesus was accursed by God, and that because of the incompleteness of His work, we love Him as a teacher, but we're going to take that and we're going to keep moving on. And of course, many religions that followed Christianity took that notion. The, the, the basics of the Muslim faith is that Jesus was not enough and that there needed to be an additional prophet because actually getting killed is not a plus. In many ways, the Mormon faith adds to and adds that Jesus, quite frankly, wasn't enough. His work wasn't enough. And even our own church was tempted, and the Reformation reminded us that Christ plus. And so this idea of simply uttering the words, Christ cursed, is somehow some secret phrase to get in trouble with God, misunderstands what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that when we see Jesus because of his humiliation from an earthly perspective and see him accursed, we misunderstand that is the world's teaching, not the Holy Spirit's teaching. So Jesus, not enough. Jesus, somehow cursed. Jesus, not fulfilling. Jesus, not fully blessed. Jesus, not fully enthroned. Does not come from the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is being added to, that's not from the Holy Spirit. But then it's also uh, 
the idea that no one can say Jesus is Lord. Now again, this is not uh, the trite phrase of somebody who, who may in an ecstatic moment say something or, or wish it was true or believes that somehow saying that is a magic phrase. As the commentaries remind us, there are people who are going to be burned at the stake and beheaded and killed and thrown in front of lions for not relinquishing not letting go of the statement that Jesus is Lord. And so the Romans go, yeah, that's fine, you can say that, but Caesar is Lord, right? No. Jesus is Lord. And none of us will have the nerve to do that in times of great difficulty when it could mean our life or our family's devastation without the Holy Spirit. To actually say Jesus is Lord and to mean it in and through our lives, regardless of circumstances, is not a trite phrase. It's not a truism that we say. It's actually a way that we live. And to say it truly will require the Holy Spirit. Because if I say it in and of my own strength, the first time you come to me and say you could lose your job for it, chances are I'm going to say, well, yeah, but Jesus is Lord, and that's my own personal beliefs, and I wouldn't want my religious beliefs to impact my job or why I'm here. So don't worry. The paycheck is Lord, and Jesus is sort of Lord in my house. Chances are I would. Without the Holy Spirit. We can't say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit. Not through real trust, uh, trial and temptation. There's also a warning against spiritualism. And this is throughout the text as one reflects on the desire to have these great spiritual gifts, to heal, to have knowledge, to have wisdom, to have all of these abilities and to see them as my own personal gift. That is, God loves EC so much that I have the ability to heal people and that makes me special. And yes, I use it for you, but man, does it make me feel good to be a healer. Spiritualism is, by definition, something that seeks to grow, the own, grow my own personal well-being and happiness and sense of uniqueness with whatever spiritual world I think exists out there. Right? Spiritualism is not the same thing as Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. It's just the notion that there's something out there that I can't really see that it would be great if I could connect to because it seems maybe it'll be more supportive of me than other things. And it'll give me a sense of uniqueness and a connection to something deeper than myself. Right? And the temptation is always there in Christianity. It's why we have the challenges of Gnosticism, which is the idea of secret knowledge that infects the church in the second century because it's so tempting to have a higher spiritual plane existence and to be connected to it. It's so tempting. It comes and goes in the church in various ways and it is in our culture regularly. But spiritualism is by definition an individualistic experience. It's why so much of it involves being far away from people and cutting oneself off from things like food and pleasure and music. And again, because like most lies, it starts with some basis in truth, there is encouragement in Scripture to be still and know that He is God. 
that Jesus did withdraw to quiet places to meditate, and then he spent most of his life in community. That whatever it meant to be in touch with the Holy Spirit for Jesus was a means by which he could exist in the world to care for it and love it. It didn't take him out of it. It gave him the ability to minister and transform it for his glory. Spiritualism is warned against that would give us any sort of special existence where we might be tempted to think these things that we are able to do, these insights, these abilities are what make us valuable or significant, more praiseworthy or honorable in the kingdom of God. That's the way the world works. That's the way evil and sin seek to divide humanity. Those who have and those who don't have. Those who achieve and those who lag behind. Those like me and the other. Because those of us who have spiritual gifts can sit around and talk about how lovely it is and we can... We can hope for those who don't quite have what we have. And of course, I mean, if I was in the room, there'd be a lot of condescension. But of course, if you guys were doing it, I'm sure there would be no sense that we had superiority. Human nature is human nature. And so we are warned by Paul that we shouldn't seek the dramatic, that we shouldn't see an addition to Christ or in any way the uh, altering of that gospel first laid down. And that the quest for relationship given to us by the Holy Spirit is not spiritualism that is handing out achievement badges in the form of various kinds of extraordinary experiences or abilities. But what we are about is a common experience with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all the way through this text. It's also very Trinitarian, and I would love to riff off of that. But as you notice, God, Jesus, God being the Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are all mentioned several times throughout the text. But it is the Spirit living in and through the individual, binding them then to the common experience of the church that marks Paul's understanding of spiritual gifts. That they are a common experience of life in the Spirit. And that some are given responsibility for certain gifts and abilities. And that responsibility is for the common good. Now the word common, sadly, I would suggest in our time, is not appreciated enough. And so the sermon today is an encouragement for a more robust honoring of the word common. Now here's why I would suggest that we should use common in a more positive way. Common does not conflict with the individual. There's no, there's no conflict in the idea of common and individual. Right? So when we think of the common, it's not like I'm like everybody else. I can be common and unique. I don't have to be special in the way that we use that word special, but common, like those around me and yet unique in my existence, is the regular theme of Scripture. It is that things are given common to all. And that the parts of the body, as we'll look at next week, share a common 
purpose, even as they are uniquely enfolded into the body of Christ. And so when we talk about common with one another or with our children, that being common is actually not negative. Most of us, the Lord be praised, are common. And common has nothing to do with conformity. You see, a misunderstanding of common might suggest that we're all supposed to act the same. But that certainly wouldn't fit in the body of Christ. We can't all be a part of the body. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to suggest that we shouldn't all be the same part of the body. Because then we'd just be a giant eye or a giant ear. And not the whole body. That the beauty of the word common is that there is the ability to share experience, to share resources and the Holy Spirit in wisdom, in guidance, in strength. God forbid we talk about money or time. The common experience of the life of Christ for the body of Christ is for Paul what should mark out our existence. It is the common reality of the Holy Spirit. Don't focus on the unique things that's happening to this person. Focus on the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured over all of us, that there's no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free, and that we all drink of the same cup, which the scholars would then tell us we should look back to those passages in Isaiah about the beauty of having a bride and the wedding feast of the Lamb and the fact that we all share the same common cup. The cup of the Lord poured out. A cup of blessing. A cup of common identity. And so, if we are to appreciate the emphasis of Paul, I would suggest we need to restore our appreciation for and the goodness of the word common. Because how much drives us when each one of us has to be special in one way or another? Why is it not sufficient to simply be unique? To be an individual? You see, when the world adds the idea of special, it usually requires that we do something that makes us stand out. Makes us powerful makes us attractive, makes us important. And interestingly enough, the Christian faith is not designed to make individual people powerful or important. It is designed that Christ would be glorified and that in the common experience of His church poured out uh, generously for the world by the power of the Holy Spirit that people would be drawn Christ, not to us as individuals, but to the community and the common experience of life within the body that would then strike the world as so unique and other that it would be drawn. The world is perfectly happy to be entertained by our great speakers and preachers. Billy Sunday used to draw big crowds because he was an amazing orator. People read Tim Keller or other scholars because they're interesting. And I'm not suggesting God doesn't use them. 
But all of those men at their best point to the common experience of the life in Christ. And the thing that sustains people's existence is that common life within the body. It is why we have to work against our negative understandings, which happen here in 1 Corinthians, that when people become a part of the body, they lose their uniqueness and distinctive. They will now think the way we do. That is to say, about every issue. Or they will dress the same way we do. Or they'll act the same way we do. Or they'll have the same musical tastes that we do. Whatever it is that begins to become a pressure in the Christian community of sameness. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about sameness. He's talking about common. Something shared, something experienced by various individuals in community. The common good. Which I've already hinted on more than once is the experience of the Holy Spirit. It is one Spirit that draws us together. If we have one Spirit, can we have anything but a common experience? If I can go get a Spirit, and you can go get a Spirit, and I can commune with mine, and you commune with yours, there is no common. We all have our individual faith, and Jesus is not Lord. But with one Spirit, and one common experience in the Spirit, one body, we then have the opportunity to encourage one another in that Spirit. We share the same Spirit, therefore when I encourage you in the words of Christ, I'm encouraging you in that Spirit. The Spirit then speaks to me through you. We share the same common spiritual experience. That's unique among religions because it stresses a part of the life of Christ that we can all participate in. Individual union with God for the glory of His world and the witness and the epiphany of a common experience that will transform the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, it is by your spirit given to each one here that we are able to know you and know ourselves better. Lord, that is all we ask, that we might together know you and each other and ourselves in the light of the gospel. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.